Welcome to Adaptivist Live, the Atlassian Ecosystem Podcast. Today's episode is entitled, From the Stacks to the Rack Servers. I'm Ryan Spilkin, and today I'm joined by my co-host, as always, the erudite Matthew Stubblefield. Hi, Matthew. Good to see you again, Ryan. Always a pleasure. And our very special guest today is Kate Doey, the Manager of Digital Programs and Initiatives for the Libraries of the University of Maryland. Hi, Kate. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you all for having me. A true pleasure. So today we want to start off with our Thunderbolt round. And the Thunderbolt round for today is going to be an aha moment that came out of reading a book. And uh, my aha moment came in West Palm Beach, Florida, while I was reading Daniel Quinn's Ishmael, which is sort of a social commentary. It's it's a bit of a philosophy thing. But I remember sitting there and reading um, a particular bit at the end of chapter four. And I, it like exposed a, a large, a macro view of cultural growth that I hadn't really considered before a perspective that, that was, that was really new to me. And I remember having to put the book down on my side, uh, at my side, uh, my father's couch and just stare at the ceiling for, I don't know how long. So that was like a tremendous moment that came purely out of reading words on the page. Uh, and that's, that's my go. What about you, Kate? So um, I actually cannot remember the exact title of the book. And amazingly enough, it was a textbook that I was reading for graduate school that was about um, systems design and librarianship. And um, it included this analogy, which I've always carried forward with me, which is imagine that you're on a flight from Honolulu to LAX, right? And suddenly the wings fall off of your plane. Technically, you don't have a problem. Right. Um, And the whole point of this analogy was that in order for you to have a problem, you must have a choice of alternatives. But the entire description of this uh, or this situation was you have a catastrophe. You have, you know, real issues, but you and everyone else on this plane are going to plummet to the earth at the exact same rate of speed. So nothing um, you can do. So why worry? Yeah. And so honestly, you know, that is something that I use quite a bit in my life as I remind myself sometimes, you know what, the wings fall off this plane and there's nothing that you can do about it. That's tremendous. Wow. Cool. I know, right? <laughs> Matthew, what about of, you? Well, it just reminds me of something I heard recently of uh, those who worry suffer twice. That is deep. Yeah. Courtesy of a movie. I don't remember which one. <laughs> Was it Avengers 2? I think it very well may have been an Avengers movie. I feel like it was. <laughs> so, Matthew, what about you? What's your aha moment? Uh, I think I, I read a lot of books, mostly fantasy fiction. Um, but in terms of like an aha moment that kind of shifted my perception and had a big impact on me, I'd probably say Tuesdays with Maury. Uh, this is a, a book I read in college. I don't remember. Uh, freshman or sophomore year. You know, so early on. And it was freshman year, I was sitting in a coffee shop and I'm reading Tuesdays with Maury and it's just like the first 16 or 20 pages of that book talks about, hopefully this is not a spoiler for anybody. The entire point of Tuesdays with Maury is that Maury's dying. The whole book is about his process of dying. And the author, uh, Mitch Album, Maury was his 
favorite professor in, in college, but he's lost touch with him. And the beginning of the book, he's, he's wrestling with the guilt of having not been in communication with Maury for so long, goes to his house to see him. And Maury comes out, you know, totters out the front door. He's already weak at that point with just his arms wide open and just so loving and welcoming and saying, I'm so happy to see you again. And I thought to myself, that's how I want to be. That's how I want to live. I want to just welcome people into my life. I want them to always feel welcome. Doesn't matter how long it's been since I've heard from them. Doesn't matter what's happened. And that's a challenge. It's always a challenge to try to become more like that person. But that, that entire book, similar to what you were saying, Ryan, where you had to stop and think, I ended up reading that book in one night. Uh, I went from that coffee shop to a different coffee shop, continued reading the book, and then just had to like walk out on the back deck and cry. Because Maury was such an amazing person, and I was so sad that he was no longer in the world. And that book, tremendous impact. And I go back to it to, to think of, what kind of person do I want to be? I want to be like Maury. Wow. This has gone way deeper than we've ever gone on the Adaptivist <laughs> Live podcast. <laughs> and it's all your fault, Ryan. My bad. My bad, y'all. <laughs> so, Kate, could you tell us a little bit about what brought you to the digital world within the library. Um, what was your path? Um, so it's a little funny the way that my career has kind of progressed, right? So um, I actually started, you know, initially I was working as a reference desk student assistant when I was an undergraduate. And I was like, hey, this seems like a pretty fun gig, right? Um, and so I enrolled in graduate school. I got a master's in library science. And um, by virtue of being like a reasonably technical person, like I've done a little bit of development, but not a lot, right? Like don't ever hire me to write code for you. Um, I've done a little bit of like web application and user experience stuff. But, you know, again, not a lot of that. But I had this an interesting enough mix and sort of an interest in you know, being able to like apply those sort of skills professionally, even if I didn't necessarily become like a software developer or go down that path. Um, you know, in addition to that, like, I think that anybody that goes into libraries, like especially academic libraries, which is where I've pretty much exclusively worked, um, you know, it's, I think really short-sighted to not see the progression of this world towards electronic materials and digital materials and being able to facilitate access worldwide to mm -hmm. scholarly collections and scholarly research. So that was how I started to shift into this world, right? And I took a lot of coursework on that in graduate school. I came out bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, spent a few years working, you know, as a digital librarian for a publishing company. Um, and then, uh, after that, I shifted fully into academic libraries. I spent a few years at Georgetown University. I managed um, pretty much all of their digital stuff, I guess you could say. Um, so I did a lot of their repository management, um, you know, and I can talk a lot about any of these terms at any point because I know I sometimes speak librarian. Um, <laughs> we fall into the same trap too. Don't don't feel bad. It's okay. Yeah. And then I also did a lot of, uh, when I was at Georgetown, I handled more of like the digitization components. And so I would work a lot with, uh, boy, I got to handle some really cool stuff actually when I was at Georgetown. Um, you know, like things out of the special collections department, old photographs, um, very old rare books. Um, yeah, some pretty, pretty nifty stuff. So. Can you talk a little bit about what it takes to pull together a digital collection? 
Oh boy, can I? Um, <laughs> Bingo. Yes. Um, so it's, you know, oftentimes it gets referenced as sort of like this ongoing like life cycle model. Um, but when it comes to a digital collection, generally speaking, you have to work with, you know, curators, right? Or do some curatorial work yourself. Um, and that is sort of the process of choosing what's going to be relevant, what is important, and what requires you know, some digital reformatting, right? So at the University of Maryland and also at Georgetown, that means coordinating pretty closely with the special collections department, um, as well as being able to work with some of the public service librarians, right? So the people that are answering reference questions that go out and they teach classes. And special collections does that, you know, reference instruction librarians pretty frequently do that, you know, um, but getting a sense of what those needs are, you know, and then, you know, as a part of that is also getting an idea of where the money is going to come from, right? So, <laughs> um, we're libraries, we're poor, right? Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, oftentimes what we do is, you know, reach out to either philanthropic donors or secure, like, in my world in particular, grants are pretty important. Uh, they're about to be significantly uh, <laughs> And so I we're think terrified. Ryan and I are both trying to think of jokes we can make about higher education funding, but we've we've been on the receiving end of that painful stand. Yeah. So where it's <laughs> just <can't>. like <laughs> it, it's just not really. What can we say? Nothing. There's no money. Yeah, and it's not <laughs> particularly funny either. It's, it's really not totally yeah, no, backwards. No, that's just bad. Um, so you know, we do secure like grant funding, like when that's available and when people aren't just trying to kneecap the NEH. Um, you know, then there's uh, you know being able to actually pull together like some of the preservation stakeholders doing the description um, and the metadata, right? So it doesn't really matter if you digitize this stuff and it's beautiful if nobody can find it, and that's where mm -hmm. metadata becomes pretty essential in that. Um, and then the actual digitization process is pretty involved, right? So especially when it comes to rare and unique <laughs> materials. Um, you need to have people that are pretty specially trained and being able to handle those materials uh, as responsibly as possible. Um, you know, when it comes to AV materials in particular, like, you know, old reels of audio or video, right? Um, you know, you have to be pretty aware of what some of the preservation risks are because that can be a pretty destructive process. Um, so you kind of go through all of that. That's what it takes to build like a digital collection. Uh, and then, you know, the way that I kind of describe like my role in this process, especially at the University of Maryland, is I worry about what happens to the digital bits, right? Um, so once you have these things digitized, I think oftentimes people that don't live in this world, they think, you know, oh, it's digitized and it's online, like it'll be fine, right? And um, you throw it on the rack, just like it's in a shelf. Yeah, people will find it. Yeah. News, a news flash for everyone: the cloud is just someone else's computer. Um, <clears throat> so you got a lot of balls in the air, a lot of stuff, a lot of mm -hmm. you're juggling quite a bit of of work. What do you use to keep track of that on a day to day basis? Um, so we use a whole lot of tools. Um, you know, in well, at Georgetown University, I relied really heavily on. Um, 
JIRA basically for managing that entire digitization workflow. So um, the way that we did that is basically as part of this process of preparing for everything, usually what you do is you generate an inventory, okay? Um, and so oftentimes that's just like a big honking spreadsheet and then you've got a dozen people going back and forth on that spreadsheet. And I was like, great, this is already eyeball bleeding. So um, <laughs> I would export that out as CSV basically. And then with the help of my system as administrator, uh, we would pipe that into JIRA into my own project basically. And then I could say, especially for in-house digitization, right? Like, okay, we have this folder of photographs, right? That's an individual JIRA ticket. Now I can track the work of individual student workers or our um, quality assurance process pretty much entirely through those tickets. And then well, from there, I can pretty much bundle that up as a collection and track it all the way through to being available in our um, repository, right? Uh, at the University of Maryland, I do a little bit less of that. Well, actually, I don't manage any of the digitization at all, uh, which is kind of nice, actually, because <laughs> I really like to be the, I like to be operating a little bit more at the fully digital level, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so what we do a lot more is we manage sort of like ingest and archiving, right? And that also goes through JIRA, and that's done by one of our systems librarians. Um, and he, you know, effectively what happens is our digital reformatting group might get a hard drive back from a digitization vendor, Okay. They do a quick check of it and make sure like, yes, this is good to go. The vendor didn't, you know, mess anything up. We don't have to send anything back. And then it gets handed off to my group and our systems librarian then kind of pushes everything through JIRA. And that helps me uh, monitor basically like where we're at, what his workload looks like. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, because as you mentioned, we do have a lot of balls in the air and I didn't even get into all of the applications that we run. <laughs> <laughs> tell us a little tell us a few i mean and and where they fit in to the process okay uh, so the biggest one is we run a repository we actually run a few repositories um the biggest one for digital collections in particular is fedora right so uh now this is where i'm just bad at the acronyms um but fedora is it stands for flexible ostensible yeah. <laughs> digital uh, or really awesome you know what you know what if only i had google <laughs> i've never this heard is, of that this, what does that what does that one stand for uh well i think it stands for get open online yeah anyways um <laughs> Now I have it. So Fedora stands for um, Flexible Ostensible Digital Object Repository Architecture, right? I was right with digital. You I feel were. like they worked really hard to make that fit, you know. Oh, uh, and yeah. it's a hat because it with the, uh, Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> you got to tip that. Because I immediately went Fedora like Linux. It's a server. Oh, no, it's some special nope. digital hat tipping thing. Yes. Um, so we run that repository for our digital collections. Um, we're in a migration process now that's super duper in the weeds. So I'm going to kind of bypass a little bit of that. But basically the goal is that eventually Fedora is kind of the linchpin of all of our digital asset management. Okay. Uh, and we're working towards that right now, but it's, you know, that's a long process. Um, 
So that's one of the pieces that we kind of have in motion. Another thing that we run here in the libraries as far as repositories go is called DSpace. Um, that one's not an acronym, it's just DSpace. And DSpace is a different kind of repository. It, at UMD, we use it as our institutional repository, right? So distinct from digital collections in my world is... Um, IRs, right? Institutional repositories. And those are sort of designed to be the, um, the home for scholarly and intellectual output at the university, right? Mm -hmm. um, so oftentimes the biggest programs, usually at different academic institutions, is this is where electronic theses and dissertations go to live, right? Um, that's also where a lot of like scholarship from, you know, faculty, graduate assistants, undergraduates, that's where those sort of things go as well. Um, we also use it a little bit for being able to serve up research data. So um, there are, for at least the immediate future, um, a pretty significant amount of federal mandates around if you're doing research that is federally funded, you need to make that data available publicly, mm -hmm. right, yeah. um, to all comers in this world. And you also need to do the same with the scholarship and then there's a whole big situation with publishers not wanting that to be the case. And you have different flavors of what can and can't be released, et cetera. Um, so we facilitate all of that. Those are kind of our two big applications. And then we also run, um, we run electronic publishing out of our department as well. So um, we have a decent amount of faculty members and students as well that do publishing at the University of Maryland. And we put them and their materials are available through a system called Open Journal Systems, right? So most of our software, partly philosophically and partly also because we're, you know, poor, most of our software is open source. Um, <laughs> so, so it sounds like there's multiple groups of stakeholders involved with this. Are you and uh, your team, are you the only ones using Jira to coordinate this or is this part of a larger system there at UMD? Um, so it's good that you should ask because I'm actually writing an entire thing about this right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, so I work very closely with kind of like two different groups, basically. Mm -hmm. Well, three different groups. I Four different groups. Let's go back out. Seven back groups. <laughs> yes. I work with about 15 different groups. Um, <laughs> so the key stakeholders that are kind of in my world is um, our software development group inside the libraries, right? So they are very fully on agile. Um, and they're very like enmeshed in like scrum methodology. And mm -hmm. so they use JIRA for all of these things. We use Confluence for influence, uh, Confluence for information sharing. Um, yeah. And, and we tend to track a lot of issues back and forth through that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I also work pretty carefully with our manager for digital collections and media reformatting. So that's where the digitization happens. Um, and she has to coordinate with vendors and she has to work with, you know, both internal and external groups to be able to actually like digitize materials to go into digital collections. Mm -hmm. um, so I need to work with her. So I have an understanding of what's in the pipeline. Uh, she's done a pretty good job of leveraging Trello in that regard. Right. So she has a nice big dashboard of here are 15, 18 different digitization projects they're moving through. Mm -hmm. Here's how big they are. And here's where they are at which stage in the reformatting process, right? Um, so I work with that group pretty carefully as well. Then um, I also work pretty closely with our um, 
special collections managers, right? Mm -hmm. So in that capacity, that's where I tend to shift a little bit more as sort of like a project owner or the product owner um, within within Scrum. And I'm that's a lot more of my background, right? Mm -hmm. Is agile and Scrum. I know I'm very fancy. Fancy. (laughs) (laughs) Quite. Yes. Um, and so that's where I tend to go out and they're kind of why I consider our principal user communities or like mm-hmm. some of our key stakeholders because they know best like what their individual researchers need, things like that. And that helps me prioritize projects accordingly. So I can go back to our software group and during the sprint planning sessions or during our one-on-ones, I can actually sit down and say like, look, these three things need to be worked on. These features and functionalities are considered high priorities. And these are the deadlines that I'm aware of based upon what I have received from our special collections group. And then I also do, uh, you know, again, like as a product owner, and I've been one for a lot of my career, like I just keep my ears open, frankly. Mm -hmm. You know, I talk with our, you know, research commons people at UMD. I, you know, work pretty closely or as closely as I can with like reference librarians. Um, you know, I listen to students whenever I can get a hold of them. Uh, I work down in the basement. You know, that's where they always like to stick the IT people. So right, I'm, yeah. not, I'm on the desk very often. <laughs> but yeah. When, and, when you find yeah. students in the basement of the library, they're not really there to talk. Uh, yeah. Like usually <laughs> they're there, they're um, lost. <laughs> or, or they're looking for study space. Right. Um, <laughs> So for, for our listeners at Atlassian, as, mm-hmm. as somebody who's, you know, you've got people working with Jira and Trello and whatnot, mm-hmm. what, could, what could we do to make your life easier? Like what would, what would improve these that would help you as, as mistress of the library and digital collections and help you work with people across Jira and Trello and whatnot? What improvements could they be doing to, to make things better for you? Hmm. That's a good and challenging question. Um, <laughs> Our specialty. I'm trying to think of what would... Oh, you know, I actually know in particular. So Trello, I have found has been kind of in my career. Trello, and I know that that's a fairly recent acquisition, mm-hmm. uh, is like probably the easiest thing to get people kind of spun up on some ideas around Agile, right? And especially around Scrum. Um, so I've also used, you know, Pivotal Tracker, like, off and on throughout my career to kind of manage, like, you know, backlogs and, you know, priorities and what's going to be coming up and doing sprint planning, right? Um, And Trello, I find, also transitions really easily in that uh, way as well. What would be really, really nice is if there were some tighter hooks between Trello and Jira, right? Mm -hmm. So I had a nice, easy way to be able to go from a Trello feature request to an epic in Jira and like have some seamless back and forth there. Right. Mm -hmm. So that way, when I have team members, that are not technical and they go into Jira and they see all the boards and they see all these things and they kind of freak out and run away. Um, (laughs) you know, that, you know, there's a nice, easier and friendlier like entry point to those sort of things. Mm -hmm. So that is, I think probably the thing that I would say, would make my life easier as I try to coordinate these things. Um, especially if I don't have to manually go in and update anything because, well, I'm busy. <laughs> it's living the dream really when, it, when automation uh, does your updating for you. Um, yeah. So Kate, mm-hmm. what would you say that you've learned over the years that has helped you manage the, the digital library better and get your work done? Um, 
So this is almost going back to that whole idea of, you know, earlier, ooh, I can link back, um, you know, to uh, that question around like books that kind of changed your way of thinking. So I am a big believer and proponent of David Allen's Getting Things Done. Um, you know, and that's a book that I read, I think, when I was an undergraduate. And um, as I've gotten older and I manage more things, I keep coming back to that as a way to kind of progress my career. Um, especially, you know, as I've like gone on, more and more of my position is about being able to elevate my thinking from that, you know, like ground level to 10,000 feet mm-hmm. to, you know, let's say 30,000 feet at this point. And I found the gang things done is kind of a nice way for me to process that. Right. So, um, that would be, I think one of the easiest things I also, as part of that, like I use OmniFocus as my manager. So I know that that's not quite like, Hooray for all of these products, but those are the things that I've. Oh, that's you know, helpful to know. Yeah. And I think you highlight like, and one of the things that I often am coaching people on is it ties with getting things done in the thirty thousand foot view is just taking the time to think. Mm-hmm. And we often, and I don't, I don't know if this is a, a peculiarly American thing mm-hmm. uh, because we're an international company, so Ryan and I are often working with the Brits and. I think perhaps other cultures struggle with this less, but I, I think in particular, a lot of the companies that I work with struggle to just give yourself a half day or day or do a retreat or get out, go for a walk, spend some time thinking to elevate yourself to that level mm-hmm. so that you can look at things in context. We often, you know, we get so tunnel vision and focused on the problem in front of us where we are just putting out fires that we never take the time to plan forward. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about building feature requests and things on, on Trello and Jira, that's, that is a bit of that forward planning, but you can't do that until you give yourself time to, to really think through what do you need, not for tomorrow, but for a year or two years from now. Wait a minute. Extra time. What is that? Ryan has none. I give him, I don't give it to him, but you know, none. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kate, we -hmm. want to thank you so much for providing us with insight into what, digital library management is like thank you tremendous yeah yeah no problem um there are a few things i really like to do more than just like talk about my job and i really do love what i do so it's like hey let me tell you about these cool things (laughs) well we're so glad you're able to join us it is very cool and uh you know from the book nerds here at adaptivist we love hearing about it awesome thank you and that's it for this week's edition of adaptivist live are you enjoying this podcast please give us one of those likes or shares somewhere. Do you want to be a guest on the show? Or maybe you have an idea for a future episode? Hit us up at learn at adaptivist.com. For Kate Doey and Matthew Stubblefield, I'm Ryan Spilkin. Thanks for listening to Adaptivist Live, the Atlassian Ecosystem Podcast. We'll see you again next week. And that's actually going to be the stinger at the end. (laughs) Uh, No, 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 not really.